We're going to be looking at a scene uh, that a lot of us are familiar with walking up to the day of Easter. It's the scene of Jesus hanging on the cross. And so a lot of these sermons we're going to be starting off with, it's going to be kind of grim a little bit. And I want us to kind of feel the weightiness of what that looks like. But we're going to end it and we're going to kind of gird you up with some hope in those uh, things. But um, I just want to let you know that's kind of where we're headed to. And what we're going to be doing over the next five weeks is we're going to be looking at the phrases that Jesus said as he hung on the cross. And so uh, my prayer is this, that throughout this series that we'll begin to prepare our hearts as we lead up to Easter, the day we celebrate that Jesus is no longer on the tomb, he's no longer on the cross, he, he's, he's not dead, he's actually alive, and that, yes, in fact, Jesus is coming back again, not as a little baby, but as a reigning and ruling, conquering king, coming to take us home, amen? Amen? Okay, uh, Pentecostals, we're going to work on those amens a little bit this morning. Um, but we're, we're, this is what this is leading up to, but there is some, there's something that happened on the cross that I do not want us to look over. The cross was very significant in the history and really in our faith as Christians. And so today, we're going to pick up at the scene where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And this can feel like we're kind of jumping in the middle of a movie because we really are. We're kind of jumping into a very, a very long story. Um, and so if you're brand new to this or you've never heard this story before, uh, I encourage you to start reading it through this week at Matthew, uh, starting at chapter 26. That's where you can kind of uh, fill in the whole uh, part of the movie as we're, it feels like we're jumping <clears throat> in the middle of a scene. Um, but we're going to skip ahead and start at Matthew 27. And this is where Jesus, he's hanging on the cross. And so let's jump in. And I'm going to kind of hopefully do my best to uh, make this picture come alive to you. Uh, the things are, the scriptures in your message guide notes as well on the TVs behind me. But this is what it says. It says this, verse 37. It says, a sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. Jesus was rest, uh, arrested on false accusations. Um, it was a very scandalous thing that happened in the middle of the night. He was arrested. And this is the charge. This is what they're charging him. He says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's who Jesus proclaimed to be. And so they're, they're mocking him. Verse 38, it says, two revolutionaries. Um, that's what my translation says. Uh, they, they're also thieves. They're, uh, just, they've got bad pass, and they're with Jesus there. Um, they're crucified with them, one on his right and one on his left. And this is what I want us to focus on. If you can hear the voice of the people yelling at Jesus hanging on the cross, verse 39, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads and mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are truly the son of God, Save yourself and come down from that cross. Even the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus, saying, he saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel? Is he really? Look at this. He trusted God. This is the heart of their mockery. He trusted God. So let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. I want you guys to kind of see what's happening. This is the scene of the cross that, that, that looked like Jesus was hanging on the cross, and we probably would have said the same thing that these people would have said. I think it's so easy to kind of step foot at the scene and, and think that we're like that one disciple, and the two women were at Jesus' feet saying, oh, that, that would have been us. We wouldn't have left Jesus. In fact, I'm such a good Christian, I would have been right there and then. I wouldn't have left him. In fact, I probably would have stood up for him and wouldn't put up with other people mocking him. 
Let me challenge you on this, because we're humans here. We probably would have been those people shouting and mocking Jesus on the cross. Well, Jesus, if you're truly God, then just come down on the cross. I mean, you saved everyone else. Couldn't you just get up? And I mean, if your God's so big, can't you just get down and get off the cross? Look at you now. And here's the key thing, because they're saying this and they're looking at Jesus, but we need to see the picture of what they were really looking at, because they weren't looking just at a body hanging on the cross. In fact, there are some things that happened to Jesus before he got on the cross. And let me give you a glimpse of what Jesus would have looked like on that day hanging on the cross. And I'm just going to describe it to you. There's no pictures, because I will tell you there's not a rating high enough to let you know that you probably shouldn't see this. You see, during this historical time with Jesus, uh, during the time of execution, at this point in time when the Romans ruled the Middle East, this was the worst time for capital punishment. The worst time. It was so grotesque. It was so disgusting for those who are witnessing it and even worse for the person going through it. This, and this is scientifically proven, this is the worst time to be sentenced to death because of what would happen to you. You see, when Jesus was arrested, it said that it took, they took Jesus to a courtyard and they, they stripped him and they, they took a leather whip and hit him with 39 times across the back. And now when we read that, we might think of, oh, like the switch that my mom used to give me a whooping, like when I behaved, misbehaved. No, no, this was a, 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 a whip with various leather strands in it and it had shards, sharp, uh, sharp shards of bone and glass And so when he whipped you with it, the bones would stick in your skin. And the only way to get the whip out is to rip it off. And with that, it would rip skin and muscle, and it would would take your organs, and they would expose them. And so in essence, they were whipping him and kind of carving him out. And the whip with with the different leather strands, it was just just a, a disgusting thing. And the guy who would do it, he would place that across your back and rip back. One time, whip it across your back, rip back two times. Jesus had to endure that 39 times. And on top of that, if that wasn't enough, the guy who would do the whipping was actually a person trained to do it. This guy who would hold the whip, he wasn't just some average Joe, and they said, hey, you, you look like you're doing nothing. Come here and and use the whip. No, this guy, he was trained in capital punishment, so he knew exactly where to strike and how hard to strike it. He knew how how hard he needed to rip that whip back so it would cause the most damage and pain, but also keep you alive at the same time. This is what Jesus had to go through. And those who would have to endure this, they would be praying that death would come and it would get here quickly. But after that, because that's not all what happened, they then took Jesus out of the courtyard and it says that they blindfolded him and then they put on their signet rings and they would beat his face in. In fact, they would mock him and say, hey, prophesy now. Beat his face in. Who hit you? If you can really prophesy, who did that to you? And they would keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And then, to put a little cherry on top of everything that they did to Jesus, they put a crown of thorns, a 
upon his head. And these crown of thorns, these are like two-inch, three-inch thorns. These are not your mother's rosebush thorns. They formed a crown, and they put on Jesus' head, and they pushed it down with sticks. So it pierced his skull. This is what Jesus had to go through. And by the time that Jesus went through all of this stuff, they hung him on the cross. And what you would be looking at, you wouldn't be looking at a human being because Scripture says that you couldn't recognize him. In fact, it looked like a bloodied, mangled animal hanging up there. Just a piece of meat. So let's go back to that scene and let's re-ask ourselves, if we saw that, we probably would have been the one saying, Jesus, do you see what you look like right now? If you're truly the son of God, I would think that you could probably rescue yourself from this situation. Everything that you've been saying and teaching right now, it doesn't look like it's true. Because what I see before me is not a king, but a prisoner that was beaten and is being executed. This is Jesus. This is the scene of the cross. And so, if you imagine Jesus hanging on the cross, and I say that if we were there, I think we would probably ask, how can you trust in your God even when you went through all of this? Jesus, how can you still say what you're saying even when you went through all of this? Here's the thing about trust. Trust, by definition, means to rely on an inward certainty, to have a, a full confidence or a complete trust no matter what is happening. But here's the thing about trust. It's easy to trust someone when things are going good. It's easy to put your trust in things when things are going good. But what happens to your trust when things aren't going so good? Let me say it this way. It's easy to trust in God when you feel like you're on the mountaintop. It's easy to trust in God when things are going well. But what happens when the darkness comes over your life? What happens to your trust? What happens? Do you feel like, oh, yeah, God, everything's going well. Praise Jesus. Or is it more like, God, I feel like you've left me. God, where are you? Here I am, hanging out. Like, are, 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 you truly, are you truly there? Here's what's interesting about this scene. I want to show you an interesting part of the story in verse 45. I want to carry on. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and uh, the Bible scholars debate about this. And this is what it says. It says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. Translations say he was there from 9 in the morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. About three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, and this is the Greek language, and meaning that he was screaming at the top of his lungs. And so I would say that uh, maybe the movies we've watched or how our mom and dad taught us this, or maybe this is brand new to you, he was screaming this at the top of his lungs with everything that he had. And he said in the Greek, he says, Eli, Eli, lemma stabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? My God, you've left me. I'm here alone. I don't see you anymore. Why have you abandoned me? Here's what I find interesting. Not once did Jesus, through this entire process, complain about everything. He could have, but he didn't. 
But something happened at this particular moment that caused Jesus to see something that he's never, ever experienced before. And this is kind of mind-boggling because God is God and he knows everything. And so how could he not know this? But at this point, Jesus is referring to God not as Abba, like he has in the past, meaning Papa or Daddy in the Hebrew. But for the first time ever recorded, Jesus is saying God. Not Father, not Dad. God, you've left me. My God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus asks a question that I think a lot of us ask God. God, why are you leaving me? God, why did you leave? God, did you, have you left? Have you ever felt like that? I mean, let's be honest this morning. Have you felt like that, like God has abandoned you in parts of your life? Like, my God, why did you leave? To be honest, as, as a pastor, um, I have. I have been in places like this, wondering, God, why did you abandon me? There's two instances. I did a funeral a while ago. It was probably one of the most intense, sad, horrible ones that left a mark in my life. And I get a call from a funeral home and say, hey, can you do a funeral for us. And I said, yeah, no, no problem. I've done funerals before, and like, I can do this. He says, but this one, he says, this one is a tragedy, uh, so much so that um, the father can't speak. The son has to talk for him. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, have him come in. And so they come in, and uh, I noticed the father's he's kind of beat up, and I'll tell you why for a little bit. He couldn't talk, but he just emotionally could not muscle up the words to, to say what he needed to say. And so their, their little son had to tell me what happened, and it turned out that his mom and dad uh, were in a vehicle, and they were headed to Lake McConaughey, and a vehicle struck behind them and sent them into an oncoming semi and just obliterated the car. And it turns out that the father, when he woke up, he found his wife laying on the road and was trying to keep her alive. And unfortunately, he could not. And, uh, and so here we have this family that a mother left behind four young boys. And the youngest of them has to tell me why his mommy died. God, why? Like, why would you, why would you do that? She wasn't a bad person. She loved you, she did a lot of good in this world, and she has a family. My God, why have you abandoned them? I personally felt like this when we found out our daughter had Down syndrome. And we spent three months in the NICU and we fought for her life. And uh, frankly, I would dare say standing here, that was the easy part. Because we prayed and we fasted and she won that fight. But then, when before the release, they had to teach us about the complications that is common for a Down syndrome child. And those were the hardest things to talk about. Complications like it is very probable that our daughter might get leukemia. And so every other month, we have to get a blood test to see if our daughter has cancer. Worst week in my life to sit there and wait wondering if my daughter's going to have cancer. On top of that, we found out the lifespan of a child with Down syndrome is not so great. More times than not, the parents will outlive their child. And that's when I wrestle the hardest with, is my God, why would you do this to me? 
that I'm going to have to wrestle with my own daughter's mortality. My God, why have you abandoned me like this? You see, we have life situations where this is going to happen. And I know there are many stories in this room that are a lot like my story where we ask, God, why? It looks like you're abandoning me in this dark time. And I would say it's a valid question. It's a valid question to have. But sadly, it might be a question that we don't get an answer in this lifetime. And that is the hardest thing to swallow. God, why did you leave? Not getting an answer. It might not be an answer we get while here. We may never get the answer to the question of why God at all while in this life. And I've came to a place in my own walk, and this was probably one of the hardest things that I had to do, is I had to come to accept that it is okay not to know. We should write that down. It is okay not to know because the grand scheme of God's plan for us, we only see part of the story. Please know this. We're a one-sided story perspective type of human being. We only see what we see in front of us. But God, he's so big and so awesome that there's tons of different strands that come out from our story, that our story is much bigger than what we see in front of us. And so while I may only see what happens and see the mother dying or seeing with my own daughter's mortality and all these different things, I have to say this, it is okay not to know everything because I only see part of God's story in my life. We only see part of the story. Paul even says it this way. He says, now we see things imperfectly. It's like a puzzling reflection in a mirror, but then we'll see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely, meaning this, there's going to, be, going to be a day where we're going to be in heaven for those of us who call ourselves Christians. And it might be on that day where we might finally fully understand why God did the things or maybe allowed some things here on this earth. That's a very hard thing to wrestle with. But you might not get the answer of why God until that day in heaven. While we're here on this earth, we're, we're, we're un, we have incomplete thinking and, and really limited competence. It doesn't matter how smart you are. You'll never know or fully understand the grandness of God's plan. The only way I can kind of put it there is it's kind of like a time where, where Micah, my, my son, he had this horrible splinter in his foot. And, uh, you know, kids, they think it's the worst thing in the world. And so I'm like, oh, suck it up. Like, you'll, you'll be okay, right? Rub some dirt on it. And so he, he goes for a couple weeks, and uh, then he starts limping on this foot. He wouldn't put any weight on it. I'm like, my goodness, like, what's going on with your foot? And so I look at it, and it's that same doggone splinter in his foot, and it's getting bad. And I told my wife, I'm like, well, we need to, like, dig this out because it's getting really bad. And, I mean, who sends their kid to a doctor over a splinter? Uh, maybe I should have. Don't judge me. <laughs> you guys are giving me looks like, yeah, you should have. Don't judge me, okay? Uh, and so, like, it was, getting, it was red. I mean, it wasn't an effect or anything like that. And so I'm like, okay, Micah, like, sit down. Micah was, like, two years old at this time. I'm like, sit down, Micah. Um, I'm going to get this really shiny tweezers, um, and I'm just going to look at your foot. Daddy's going to look at your foot. And he says, okay. And he says, and as soon as I touch it, he starts screaming like bloody murder. And he's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't touch it. And he's yelling at mom because dad's hurting him. And I'm like, be quiet. It's just a splinter. Like, like we'll get this. And, and he was squirming so bad that he actually, my, I had to call my wife over and had to hold Micah down. 
And there was this whole time where I was, I was digging at his foot, and I was trying to get it out. We eventually got it out. We eventually got it out. And keep in mind, it is a splinter. I wasn't, like, doing anything bad for my son. It was a splinter. But the grandness of God, trying for us to understand it, would be like me telling my two-year-old son, hey, you need to sit here and endure some pain just for a quick bit so, I, so Daddy can get the splinter out. He doesn't understand that. All he knows is that this really hurts. You see, that, that's it, that is what our thinking is like when we try to understand why God does the things he does. We're not going to know, nor would we understand if he would tell us. Because God's ways are higher above our own ways. Isaiah 55, that's exactly what that says. It says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could ever imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so I have to ask this question, maybe this is a question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, so then if we're not going to understand, then what do we do when darkness comes over our life? If we can't possibly understand, what are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to say, hey, yeah, okay, I'll just, I'll just sit here and just take it? I would tell you that's, that's not the way. In fact, someone tells you that, that is not biblical. There are a few things that we're supposed to do that I want to let you know what happens when you feel like God has abandoned you and darkness has come over your life and you're asking why God. You see, here's the thing. When life changes, because everything around us changes, we have to cling to an unchangeable God. We have to cling to an unchangeable God. So the first thing that we have to do is realize and even may say out loud, God is good. Can you guys say that this morning? God is good. We have to say that. We have to know that God is good. Mark, uh, Mark 10, 18, it says that no one in this room, not one in this world, no one that you can read or find or whoever you listen to, not even a preacher, no one is good except for God. God is always good. And this is why this is important, because as human beings, we tend to reflect God with our current circumstance. So like if things are going good, then yes, God is good. Amen and hallelujah. I'll go to church and do those things. It's awesome. Me and God are fine. But when things get bad, we immediately like, God, why are you being mean to me? Why did you leave? Why did you allow that to happen? God, God, if you were so good, why am I right here right now in the place that I'm in? We tend to reflect God with our current circumstances. But here's the thing. God does not change with our issues. God does not change with our problems. God does not change when our seasons of life change because our God is unchangeable. Come on, church. I want to say an amen to that one. That is why we can firmly and faithfully say, God is good. God is good. I was in a car accident uh, where my grandfather died, and we were on a hunting trip, and we hit a, a patch of black ice, and it, what happened was is, uh, we were going down a hill, and uh, we hit the ice, and we ended up going off a ravine that was very, very steep. We visited almost every other year just to kind of put in perspective what, the, what God did in my life. And uh, this really massive ravine and uh, caused my grandfather and us to be airborne. We got ejected out of our, our vehicle, this little, this little Ford Ranger. And uh, my grandfather died on impact. He died. And then I was thrown ahead of the car, ahead of the truck. 
And the truck, as soon as it hit the ground, started flipping. And I was thrown far enough that the truck flipped three to four more times and it landed on top of me, cab side down. And it was a very, it was horrible. It was a horrible, horrible car accident. And it was only by miracle God that I was able to live through that. But I remember the aftermath of that. I had, to, I had a really nasty bruise. I had to kind of relearn how to walk a little bit because I couldn't put any weight on it and all that stuff. And I was wondering at a young age of 10, I believe I was 10 years old, of asking, why God? I was a young boy. I was like, God, why would you take my grandpa from me? Why would you let us go through what we went through? It was the first traumatic thing that's ever happened in my life. And I, remember, I don't remember at all what the preacher said at the funeral, but I do remember him saying this. He said, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And that's the only thing that stuck with me, leaving that funeral that day. And I thought, if the preacher would say that, there must be some weightiness to that phrase. And so I learned from that time that, yeah, God has to be good. I read in scripture, God is good all the time. He never changes. He's an unchangeable God. And to this day, I think that's why when our life gets hit with some uh, things that I think maybe a lot of people would consider tragedies, uh, my wife and I, we're, we're pretty firm. We, we, we don't waver. And, and maybe some people would say that you're just not being real, but no, we are. Is, is, is we sit there and we're like, God is still good. When we find out about miscarriage, God is still good. When I find out that one of my student leaders committed suicide last week, I still have to say, God is still good. You see, God is good in every circumstance. And whether you agree with that or you don't agree with that this morning, that's between you and God to wrestle with. But you need to know God does not change. He is always good. In the midst of cancer, God is good. In the midst of abuse, God is still good. In the midst of losing a child, God is good. And when you're going through that season, you don't want to say God is good. Everything in your body does not want to say it, but you have to remind your spirit that God is still good. Because he is. This is part of his character. So if God is good, here's the second thing we have to remember. God is then, he's for me. God is for me. Romans 8, 31, 32. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, church, what does it say then? Who can be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? At the beginning, we talked, in, uh, talked about this message where Jesus is hanging on the cross and all, that, uh, all the things that he had to endure. I mean, he was beaten so badly that he didn't look like a human being. He got whipped 39 times across the back, and his back was just filleted open. It looked like a, uh, he looked like a piece of just, just bloody meat just sitting there. His organs exposed with the crown of thorns pushed on his head, and then they slammed him down on the cross that looked probably pretty close to that, and they drove huge nails through his hands and, and his feet and then they mocked him and went through all this horrible stuff for hours and hours on end for you that is how much God is for you he did not even spare his own son so that he can have a personal relationship with you so how can we not say God I know you're for me. God is for you. 
even, <laughs> this is what blows my mind. God is for me even when I mess up. God is still for me when my daily actions don't represent that. God is for me even if I was one of those people mocking him and spitting on him at the cross. God is for me and God is for you. If God did not spare his own son, how much more than is God for you? You need to know God is for you. God's love is so much greater than our ours than he sent his only son to die on the cross so that you, you, the person that has absolutely no business having a personal relationship with God, let that sink in for a little bit. He loves you that much that he did that to his own son. Feel the weight in the room a little bit? God loves you that much. And if he's for you that much, then how much more will he give you everything that you need to make it through the bad time where you feel like God has abandoned you? Here's the third thing that we have to remember. If God is good and God is for me, that means God He's always with you. God, he's always with you. God is always, Hebrews 13, 5 says this. He says, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Here's the crazy thing about that day that Jesus hung on the cross. God forsook his son so that he could never forsake you. Please listen to that. God abandoned his one and only son so that he would never abandon you. I'm your pastor and I wouldn't even do that for you. I'm sorry, I'm keeping my son. But God, thankfully, is way bigger than any spiritual leader in this world. God is so grand and his love is so big that he was willing to let that happen. So then when he has a relationship with you, he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And because that, because of that, I think we can trust God in all things in this life. We can trust God in all things, good and bad. Proverbs commissions us this way. It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. The, the phrase seek his will in the original language means to truly know God, to truly know. Some of our translation just says acknowledge God, meaning like, hey, God, I acknowledge you. See ya. Like, oh, hey. No, he says to, to intimately, truly know that's what that language means. That God, I know you so well that in all things, I'm going to put my trust in you and I'm going to heed your word and I'm going to discern the, the things that I need to hear from your voice. And when I do that, I know the things that you have for me is good in every circumstance and I'll know which path to take at the right time I'm supposed to take it. God, he's always with you. He is always with you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Truly know God's will for you. And he will make your path straight. Here's the last thought for this message, church. Is when we truly know God, the more we grow with God, the more we go deeper with God, at least in my case, the better I know God, 
the less I ask why. Why, God? But what I do ask is, the more I ask what? God, what do you want me to see in this season? What is it that you're trying to teach me? What is it that you're wanting me to do? Because God, he makes everything for his good. So there's a plan and purpose. And since he does that through us, instead of asking why, we need to be asking the question, what? Don't pack up yet. Don't pack up yet. We need to be asking, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn from this? We need to be asking the question, what? I had to learn this because um, I got the news uh, two days ago. Uh, the news that one of my student leaders from my previous youth group in Scotts Bluff, um, he committed suicide. He took his own life. And this morning, my wife gets a bunch of messages from our former youth group, who are now adults. They're in their young 20s. Um, and they're asking, what are we supposed to do? First of all, here's a quick lesson. Never forsake the time that God has put you in someone's life, even if you don't see any fruit from it yet. Because I had, I had, that just proved that God used that time, and they ran back to that. So don't, don't forsake that. The second thing is this, is... God will take things that just look horrible and tragedies from the outside and he'll use it for his good. But that is shine through you as the person responding to that circumstance. You see, the reason when I go up there and if I have a part in this service, the, peop the reason why I pray that people walk away knowing that God is good is how I'm going to respond to this. You see, if I would just throw everything in the air and say, oh, I was lost, and it, it truly is a tragedy. I've had my time of mourning. I've had my time of grieving and those, those things. But there's a time where there's a, there's a job to do in response to what is happening. And it can bring the question of God, what am I supposed to do through this tragedy? Just like when the other side of the state is flooding and the other side of the state is under snow. God, what am I supposed to do in response to this tragedy? Because he'll use it for his good. He'll use it for his glory. But he does it through us. So to wrap this up, I mean, I want to answer the question that we asked in the beginning. Why did God abandon Jesus on the cross? It's because something happened to Jesus in that very moment, that could never happen again. It never happened before Jesus came and will never, ever, ever happen from this time on. Never, ever, ever. It only happened in this time, only in the world's history. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, please listen, please listen, do not tune out. Jesus became sin. Listen to that, listen to that. Jesus became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason why God abandoned Jesus on the cross is because Jesus became sin. I don't think we see that. Because sin is just a cute three-letter word that Christians made up so we can say this is what sin is. Sin is just means something bad. But what is sin? 
What did Jesus become? Rape? Jesus became that on the cross. Extortion? Jesus became that on the cross. Cheating and lying? Jesus became that on the cross. Adultery? Molestation? Jesus became that on the cross. Murder? Affairs? Jesus became that on the cross. And God's eyes are too righteous to see that. And so God abandoned Jesus on the cross. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Because while, yes, Jesus did that, he was put in a rented tomb for just a few days, he defeated death, rose again, that's good. But here's an even better news. Here's something great. Here's something great. Because God had to forsake his own son, we can now have a personal relationship with Jesus in spite of what sins we're wrestling with now. Because he doesn't see us as we are. He sees us through the blood of his son. That is the good news, church. That's why Easter is such a big deal to us. That's why we push, go invite your friends. You go to the highways and byways and you compel the lost to get here on Easter. Because you have to know, in spite of your mess-ups, in spite of your screw-ups, in spite of all the things that you've done, past, present, or future, God does not care because he sees you through the blood of his son. And he loves you that much. And for us that knows God, we know that good news, we know the gospel, but there are people in this world who are in a dark place, wrestling with their own sins, and have no idea how to go managing and maneuvering through this life. And we as Christians, we as Christians that are light bearers to Jesus' gospel, we have the key. We have the life-saving gospel that could save their life. To let them know that it doesn't matter if you're in a dark time. It doesn't matter if you've messed up. Because my God sees you through his son's blood. He knows who you could be. Man, if we can catch that. You want a revival in our town? It starts there. And so as we talk about this over the course of the next five weeks, I want you to take that. Know that Jesus became your sin so that God the Father can look through you as he's looking like at his own son. That's all I can say to you guys. That's why we have a cross hanging in our church. It's why we take communion. It's why we celebrate Easter. It's why we push invite, 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 invite. It's not so our church can grow bigger. I frankly don't give a rip about that. I care about the lost souls who don't know Jesus, that we as Christians, we're holding that, that key to let them know it could be better. And it is better. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this message. And God, I thank you. I thank you that 
you left your son at the cross so that you would never leave me. Man, how selfish does that sound? But God, that's the reality of what you did. And Jesus, I want to say thank you for not complaining once. There's a time in the garden when you say, Lord, if this is your will, I, like, I, I would like to not go through it. But you said yourself out of your own mouth, but if this is your will, I will go through it. In other parts of scripture, it even says that you counted it as joy to go through that. Who does that? You do. So Jesus, I just say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Knowing that I can't do anything in my own effort to save myself. And Lord, I pray for people in this room that if, if they're going through a hard time, Lord, maybe it's as desperate as one of my student leaders where it's just dark and they truly can't feel you. Lord, right now, would you just put your peace and your security upon their life? Lord, would you let them know that you're there, that you haven't left them, that in fact, that you're still good and that you are for them and that you are with them? Lord, I thank you that I've come to a place where I, I know it's okay not to know everything and that I am firmly planted in you. Lord, let us as the Rock Church be that person that we are planted firmly, Father, so that those who are wavering and going through a storm, they can come to us and see just how firm we are. And God, that they would, they would think like, man, like what is going on in your life? Seems like everything's going good, but Lord, we know it's not going good. But we do know is that while things change around us, we cling to an unchangeable God. I've only got one call this morning, heads are bowed, eyes closed. Is maybe you're going through a hard time or maybe you feel like God has abandoned you. Or maybe you don't know Jesus at all. Here's the thing. I was at the point in my life where I did not know Jesus and I did feel abandoned. I felt lost. I felt like I had no purpose. But then I found Jesus and he's changed that all around in my life. I know without a doubt today I have a plan and I have a purpose. And that God has a mission for me that's actually way bigger than, than myself. But it starts with a personal relationship with God. If you're sitting here saying, do you know what? I want that relationship with Jesus. I want it now. Would you just slip your hand up? I just want to pray for you. Is there anyone saying, yeah, I want, my, I want a personal relationship with God. Amen. Is there anyone else? Yeah, amen. Anyone else? Father, I thank you. I thank you that you're at work. And for those of us who maybe slipped our hands up, or maybe some, there's some of us that we just need to get back with God, you know, you can just say, God, would you come into my life? Would you make me clean? Starting now, I'm a new creation, and I'm not going to live this life centered around me, I'm going to live this life centered around you. I completely surrender myself to you. Let me tell you, if you said that prayer this morning, it's almost as if like it's a whole new like lens just over your life because God does not see you as your former self. He sees you as a child of the king. Your whole identity just changed. And it's an awesome privilege to have that happen. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this message. 
And everyone in the church said, amen, amen. Will you give it up for the two people that gave their life to Christ this morning? So good.